Hi, I'm Father Chris Alar of the Marian Fathers, and it's an honor to have you back with us here on EWTN for Living Divine Mercy. In the New Testament, the letter to the Hebrews discusses the priesthood of Christ. Yes, Jesus now assumes the role of the high priest once and for all. So who then are Catholic priests? A priest is defined as an intermediary between God and man. But isn't Christ the only mediator? Yes, but Tim Staples explains it this way. Quote, Catholic clergy do not usurp or diminish the unique priesthood of Christ when they are referred to as priests. They participate in the unique priesthood of Christ. So intimate is their union with Christ that Paul describes this mystical union as a body with Christ as its head. What can be attributed to a hand in the body does not somehow take away from the head. Indeed, it is Christ and his priesthood living in them. So yes, Jesus is the only mediator between God and man, but Jesus's body is the church. So when you go through the church, we are going through Christ as our mediator. A priest is the one who offers sacrifice to a God. So the Catholic priesthood is about offering sacrifice to the one true God. Non-Catholics often say that the word presbyter in the Bible doesn't mean priest, but rather elder and nothing more. But these presbyters were priests because they offered sacrifice to God. The church fathers were unanimous that the mass is a sacrifice, a representation of Christ's self-offering on the cross. Even the Didache states, Break bread and offer the Eucharist, but first make confession of your faults so that your sacrifice may be a pure one. So there again, sacrifice. All Catholic priests operate in persona Christi capitis. This means in the person of Christ, the head. The power doesn't come from the priest, but it's God's power through the priest. For example, Jesus said, the apostles had the authority to forgive sin when he said, whose sins you forgive are forgiven in heaven, and whose sins you retain are retained in heaven. It was Christ who had ultimate authority to forgive sin on earth, but when you have ultimate authority, you have the power to delegate that authority, and Christ did to the men of the church. God the Father had ultimate authority, and he gave his power to the Son, who in turn gave it to the apostles. The apostles then delegated that power to other priests through laying on of hands, which we call apostolic succession. We know this because the apostles chose their own successors, such as Matthias in the Acts of the Apostles. 
the essence of the Old Testament priest, uh, the priest in the Old Testament, was that he offered sacrifice, usually with blood, in expiation for sin. The Jews believed sin was so deadly it ran through our blood. So the shedding of blood represented the emptying of sin. But these priests offered a sacrifice apart from themselves. The priest and the victim, such as an animal, were distinct and separate. But that's not the case with Jesus and the Catholic priest. On Calvary, Christ was the person offering and the person being offered. In the Mass, the one being offered is still Christ in the Eucharist, and the one offering is now the priest. As priests, we offer Christ in the Mass, but as victims, we offer ourselves with Christ as well. So we priests are not just shepherds, but we are lambs too. As the offerer, the priest is the shepherd. As the one being offered, the priest is also the lamb, just like Christ. But we have to ask, isn't the church sexist and chauvinistic because it allows only men to be priests? No. Because Christ was a man, the priest, who is in persona Christi, must also be a man. Women have the role of spiritual motherhood, critically important, but not the role of spiritual paternity. Men and women in the church are equal, but different. Priests are spiritual fathers. From the altar, the priest gives the life-giving seed. This seed can only be given by a man, and it is received by the church, the bride, who is feminine. She then nurtures it, and from it, only she can give birth and life. That is why we call her Mother Church. A woman doesn't give the seed. The father does. The mother receives it and gives life, so both are needed. If any woman could have been a priest, it would have been Mary, but she was not. That is why the priest has always been called father. But the Bible says, call nobody your father. Well, Jesus didn't mean not to refer to someone as father in an earthly sense. Jesus meant that there is only one creator, one true father, one Abba. Why else would the commandment say to honor your earthly father? The Gospel of Luke says the rich man called out Father Abraham to come and dip his finger in cool water. St. Paul calls religious leaders fathers in Acts 7-2 and in Acts 22 uh, verse 1. He tells also the Corinthians, I became your father. <laughs> so, but, but how then can the priest be a father without being married? Well, he is a spiritual father with many children. Like Christ, though, the priest doesn't marry because his bride is the church. 
As busy as we are, we could never serve two wives, the church and a spouse at home. Remember, Christ is the groom. The church is the bride. And that is why the mass is nuptial. When you, you come, okay, up the aisle for Holy Communion, it is like your wedding march. And like any Catholic wedding, when the bride comes to the altar, who is waiting for her? Her groom. And in the Mass, when you, as the bride, come forward, Jesus, your groom, is waiting for you at the altar. And like the marriage being consummated, when the groom enters into the bride, at Mass, it is consummated when Jesus, the groom, literally enters into you, the bride. Remember, the Bible begins with a wedding, Adam and Eve, and ends with a wedding, the wedding feast of the Lamb in the book of Revelation, which is the Mass. Finally, what about the attire of the priest? Well, under our outer garments, we wear an inner garment called an alb, which means white and reminds the priest of the purity of his baptism. Around the waist, the priest wears a rope called a cincture that serves as a belt. It symbolizes gird your loins. Next, we have the stole, a cloth to represent the cross when it's crisscrossed in the old rite, and also represents Roman soldier belts that were worn for provisions and to hold their sword. Now, over our alb, we wear a chasuble, which comes from the Greco-Roman world. The word means house and was a cape to protect the person from the elements. These chasubles are worn in different colors based on the liturgical season. For example, white or gold represents the resurrection, purity, and glory, and is worn for feasts of our Lord, our Lady, Mary, um, and saints who uh, died not as martyrs. Then we have red, which symbolizes fire and blood. And this is worn for feasts of the Holy Spirit and for martyrs who died for their faith. Then there's green, and this stands for hope. And we wear that in ordinary time. Violet represents penance. And that is worn during the Advent and Lenten seasons. Black is for mourning and is worn for such events such as funerals. And rose vestments are worn to represent a Sunday of joy during the penitential Advent and Lenten season. Now, the vestments also have meaning, such as being symbolic of the Passion of Christ. An amice, can, which is worn by the priest to cover his collar, can represent the blindfold worn to cover Jesus' eyes. An alb represents, which we just talked about, uh, the garment Jesus wore while being on trial and being mocked and beaten. The cincture are the ropes, as we said, that tied Jesus during his scourging. The chasuble, that's a seamless garment for which the soldiers rolled dice, and Jesus was wearing at the time of his passion 
And lastly, the stool, which we said when cross, such as in the old rite, represents the cross of Christ. And then finally, what about my daily attire of black and white? Well, black represents, again, death. So we priests are experiencing death to the world, and the white represents hope. So it's a little ray of hope in the midst of the death of the world. We have the white, which represents that hope in eternal life. Now, let's hear the story of Brother Gabriel, a Franciscan friar, who has expanded his ministry to include putting the faith on wheels, literally. My name is Brother Gabriel Cortez, and I am a Franciscan friar of the Immaculate. The process of discernment for religious life is a very mysterious one, and everybody has their own story, their own testimony. Everybody has unique actual graces that are given to them from heaven in whatever ministry or whatever vocation that may be. At age 17, Brother Gabriel Cortez, a cradle Catholic, made the decision to deepen his faith and become a Franciscan friar. In my discernment of religious life, living a life of prayer, living a life of fasting, of being more generous, I made a conscious and deliberate effort to practice virtues, the virtues that I didn't practice beforehand. And so the direction of his life changed forever. A passion for his Catholic faith had set him on fire for proclaiming the Word of God as a friar. But a few years later, his yearning for a childhood passion resurfaced. I began skateboarding at the age of 10 in the little mountain town of Bristol, New Hampshire. I found a skateboard on my front lawn. I had never seen a skateboard before. As soon as I stood on the skateboard, I thought, that is for me. Since he first put his feet on that skateboard 35 years ago, Brother Gabriel has never lost his passion and enjoyment for what skateboarding offers. I liked the freedom and the absence of team pressure. I liked the flexibility of the environment, of being able to skateboard on hills, in the city, in the country, over fire hydrants, down sidewalks, you name it. I could be me. I've always been very, very passionate and very intense. I'm a very highly revved up individual. And so whatever I do, I kind of put my whole self into it. It's never really halves for me. It's either kind of all or nothing. So the question was, how could Brother Gabriel unite his passion for Christ with his passion for skateboarding? Part of his ministry was visiting Catholic schools around the country to encourage youth to continue to pursue their faith. My superior, he knew I was going to be making a school visit to a Catholic high school. And he said to me, what do you think of the idea of bringing a skateboard? I thought about what he said, 
and I thought it was a great idea. I mean, we're all broken. Even though we've been washed in the regenerating waters of baptism, we still have the effects of original sin. You know, we all get impatient. We all get angry. Oh. So, um, should I get discouraged and stay down? No! What, get back up? Okay, 85% of skateboarding, for me, is falling down. Okay, that didn't work. Failure. I like to use that analogy because everybody who watches skateboarding, you know, they realize that, yeah, they don't land things, you know, first try. So we're constantly chipping away at our tricks. Oh. Oh. We always take a lot of spills and we have a lot of slams before we actually land the trick. In keeping the commandments, I tell these kids, when they're living the life of faith and trying to be faithful to God, if they fall, don't get discouraged. Just get back up. All right, you in the back. In the gospel, we read, you know, that greater love than this Light no down. man has that he laid down his life for his friends. There you go. Squish, squish, squish. Yep. The students are easy. They always volunteer for anything I need them to volunteer for. They want to lay down their lives so that I can jump over them. Great job! It's been, you know, 22 years. I've never hit anybody. I've never landed on anybody. It's like second nature for me. So I know it's safe. And then, of course, the teachers, they do the same thing, and the principals do the same thing, and then Monsignor is getting involved. I normally don't jump over clerics, only when they insist. I use skateboarding to create an environment of excitement so that I can tell them that God wants them to be happy and you can have fun doing so. Some people may think that I'm making use of skateboarding to make the Catholic faith cool, but the answer to that would be no. Because the Catholic faith, Christianity, is already the coolest thing in our cosmos. St. Augustine said once, Christianity is like a lion. You don't actually have to defend it. All you have to do is just let it out of the cage. And I'm letting the Catholic faith out of the cage with skateboarding. The most rewarding aspect of my ministry and work is seeing people rise from the dead and actually embracing the faith, living Christianity and making Christ the king and center of their life. It's in fact the most beautiful thing you will ever witness in time and space. Well, thank you, Brother Gabriel. What a fun way to bring Christ to the youth. 
Now let's hear from one of our newest ordained priests as he tells us a little bit about that experience. This is Father Tim. Well, <clears throat> the first one is the moment of the laying on of hands when the bishop comes and lays his hands on the priest, in this case, on my own head. Uh, it was definitely a, mem a very memorable moment um, because that is when the office of priesthood is conferred. Uh, and then having all the brother priests come and lay their hands in a, in a blessing upon me as well, you know, feeling uh, brought into this, you know, priesthood of Jesus Christ in a very real and profound way uh, was a, a, a huge memory to me. It's a very surreal moment, you know, um, and it's a blessing, you know, again, to, to lift up not only the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, but I'm lifting up the whole congregation, you know, whoever's present at that Mass and people who aren't present at that Mass. Many people may not realize, but every time, you know, a priest celebrates Mass, there is a particular intention that he's lifting up at that moment in time. And it's such a honor and privilege to be able to take whatever that intention is that was given to us um, and to, to offer that up to the Heavenly Father. You know, so when I'm offering up the body of Christ or the blood of Christ, it's also in conjunction with, you know, the death of a loved one for the repose of their soul or for, you know, a family situation that needs extra grace, right? You know, to be able to, to use this moment, this opportunity to just as I think of Christ, you know, at the end of John's gospel, and he has that long prayer where he's offering up to the Father his, his disciples and he's begging the, the Father. I think it's a very similar moment to that because right, that happens right you know, at the time of the Last Supper when he gives that discourse, that prayer. And so that's the sort of state that my heart sinks up with is that it's just this uh, great moment of trust. Thank you, Father Tim. Praise be to God for your vocation with the Marian Fathers. Now let's hear a little bit in Saints in Focus on Teresa of Avila. Teresa of Avila was born in 1515 to a successful Castilian merchant family in Avila, Spain. She was a born leader, passionate, chatty, and witty, and very comfortable taking charge. As a child, she persuaded her brother Rodrigo to run away to Africa to be a missionary and a martyr, but they were caught by their uncle. Then the two tried to live in hermitages in the backyard, but this too failed. So Teresa led her friends in the game of playing nuns, hardly something we would imagine girls doing in our more secular society. With all these signs, you would expect her to be a perfect Carmelite nun, right? Not so fast. After joining the Carmelites and developing a life of prayer for five years, Teresa of Avila went through 15 years of spiritual laziness. She went through the motions, but her heart wasn't all in. At the age of 40, however, Teresa was convinced by the grace of God to return to the roots of her calling 
and to really strive for the heights of sanctity. Three years later, she began her great reform of the Carmelite order and eventually founded the independent order of Discalced Carmelites with her close friend and Carmelite brother, St. John of the Cross. In 1970, Pope Paul VI declared Teresa of Avila a doctor of the church because she can teach us most about prayer, about our interior life with God. The Gospel of John records Jesus saying, in my father's house, there are many mansions. And Teresa of Avila expands this image in her book on the life of prayer, The Interior Castle. As we grow in prayer and the love of God, we ascend through the seven mansions within the soul until we reach what Teresa calls the mystical marriage or the transforming union with God. Don't think that this transforming union is only for great saints and mystics hidden away in convents and cloisters. St. Teresa insists that growth and holiness does not depend on one's environment. Rather, she says, the time is always favorable for God to grant his great favors to those who truly serve him. This is Teresa's great contribution as a doctor of the church. She teaches us to pray without words, to pray with mind and heart united to God. St. Teresa of Avila, pray for us. Today, the Lord has been teaching me once again how I am to approach the sacrament of penance. My daughter, just as you prepare in my presence, so also you make your confession before me. The person of the priest is, for me, only a screen. Never analyze what sort of a priest it is that I am making use of. Open your soul in confession as you would to me, and I will fill it with my light. When the priest acts in my place, he does not act of himself, but I act through him. His wishes are mine. I can see how Jesus defends his representatives. He himself enters into their actions. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us on this important episode about the priesthood. And please be with us next week as we talk about the life of a Marian priest. And we'll interview some of our priests that you may know as they tell you about their different ministries and how they experience the priesthood. And until then, may Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>